writers write, actors read, audience listens, and everybody reads. Tonight, here at Packing Pelican, our theme is Parent and Child, and it's in support of CATS Foundation. That's Cure and Action for Taste Acts, about which more later. We'll have three stories in the first half, a brief talk about the charity from the Chief Executive, and an interview before we resume with the infamous Lies Lee book quiz. And three more tales. I suppose I should issue a parental advisory, which is to point out that not all of our stories are suitable for parents. <laughs> or at least not the most timid of parents anyway. There's also a little bit of light cussing, but your kids will probably end up watching Breaking Bad before they're teenagers and wondering what the fuss was all about. One last piece of advice, or a request. Please silence any mobile devices while the story is being read, and keep the chatter to a minimum, and we shall begin. Our first story of the evening will be Destiny's Child. Children. Sorry. <laughs> Destiny's Children by Rosalind Stott and read by Carrie Coe. Rosalind has written stories for Liars Lee in London, New York, Hong Kong and Leeds. And some of them have been published. She has yet to publish a best-selling novel, but the omens are good that this is getting trusted. Carrie's recent work includes playing Mrs. Tarleton, in Miss Alliance, Petty in Gout, voicing characters for films The Wake and Bad Advice, reading stories for a Ratley Press, and continuing to be seen strutting her stuff in the Spectators outfit. Carrie! Destiny's Children by Rosalind Stock. I found my granddaughter in John Lewis. I'm not a snob, and I wouldn't have minded if she came from the pound store or little, but she didn't. She was in the Oxford Street John Lewis women's clothes section, in a pram between Jigsaw and Hobbs, and there was no one with her at all. I made faces at her at first to keep her happy, played big bow in between the cashmere jumpers and pretended to sneeze. But we were both getting bored and still she hadn't been claimed. I'm good with babies. In any other age I'd have been sat in a corner somewhere knitting with grandchildren on my lap and a fire to warm my knees. But I was born in the golden age of rock and roll. I still wore killer heels and slept with at least one new man a month, usually from the internet. <laughs> I lived alone in a penthouse flat. My only daughter does something inexplicable in Silicon Valley to do with picturing the exact size of items when shopping online. She throws her eggs years ago, and by the time she defrosts them, I'll be dead. Nothing more than a 
computer, a virtual grandma. So, I'm afraid that when I saw Alberta, I was unable to resist. After all, if her mother or father or grandmother or nanny had wanted to keep her, they would hardly have left her alone in such a public place, would they? And she liked me. I could tell that she did. <laughs> she held her chubby arms out towards me, and she offered me a turn of the small penguin she was holding. There was no clue to her name in the old-fashioned silver cross plan, so we chose a new one together. I was prepared to follow the alphabet through to Xanthi, Yolanda, and Zulaika if necessary, but she waved and cooed at Alberta, so that was just fine with me. I found out later from the newspaper report that her name had actually been Daisy. But Alberta suited her much better, so I stuck with it. I lived in Canada for a while when I was younger, and it's nice for children to have a link with their heritage. <laughs> what about her poor mother, I expect you're thinking. Wasn't she terribly upset and bereft and all that sort of thing? I guess she was, at first. I have to admit that she was, at least for a while. She gave interviews on TV wearing designer sunglasses and dabbing at her nose. But she had another baby the next year and wrote a best-selling book about the whole experience that made her a lot of money. She knew by then, of course, you see. She knew that Alberta was safe and being looked after I sent word via a third party and a substantial amount of cash and promised to hand her over if either of them got too upset. Thank you very much, she said in the note that she sent back to me. I was actually finding life quite difficult and the baby seemed to have insomnia and she hated my personal trainer and misbehaved on long-haul flights. So I'm happy for her to stay with you, as long as no one ever finds out. <laughs> that sort of then, Bertie, I said. It looks like it's just you and me. She did, and pulled off to examine the paints I'd laid out in the corner to encourage her creativity. I installed a white clean area over the floor and hallway, half away up the hall. Uh, wait, and, <coughs> I installed a white clean area over the floor and halfway up the walls. So whatever mess she made didn't matter. I photographed it every day and planned to put up a mural showing her development. My friends were green with envy. They came round more often, drawn by Bertie's youth and gorgeousness as if it might rub off on them. They held her reverently, as if she were a religious relic or the last surviving baby in the world. The future of the human race depends on this little pocket, 
said Marie. I thought she said, Fuck it for a moment. I'd known Marie vaguely before Bertie, but never as a close friend. She visited often now, and this time had bought an expensive bear and tales of how she hoped her son would soon settle down. He's gay, she said, but quite settled with his father. I love that they thought I might become some kind of oracle, someone who might know about such things. Did your daughter have a dog before she had this sweet little thing? I smiled in a sad way to show that, no, my daughter had not dabbled in canine ownership before launching into motherhood. Yes. I'd told everyone Alberta was my daughter's child. It was a long time since my daughter had visited it, and I thought that by the next time she came round, I would have thought of a plan. If that sounds stupid, let me put it another way. I was in love, but that's the thing that ended it. I'd fallen for this child just as surely as if she'd been propelled for my elderly vagina <laughs> after a miracle sexagenarian pregnancy featured exclusively in the Daily Mail. <laughs> I, I just wanted to be with her. And I couldn't think logically, couldn't imagine further than the next five seconds. Think of the most powerful crush you've ever had and double it. No, no, no. Quadruple it. That's how I felt about Bertie. We worked out a rotor. It wasn't exactly a babysitting rotor because I really left the house apart from when I took Bertie for our afternoon walk. More of a company rotor. One of my friends would keep me company at all times passing the nappy cream and making tea until I felt quite royal. Sometimes there were two of them at a time, especially in the afternoon when we took a turn around the park, one on either side of the track. Is she warm enough? Someone would say, or, oh, let me get her an extra cardigan, it's a bit sniffy today. I was in heaven. I remembered how lonely I'd been, not only when my own daughter was little, but recently, too. And I marvelled at how things had changed. It was at least three months before the questions started, but once they started, they escalated like a swing storm. When's your daughter coming back, did you say? And I'm sure she won't be wanting to leave her lovely baby much longer. That kind of thing. I invented several business deals that needed to be made by my daughter in person, two relationship traumas, and a doggy appendix. I began to think that I would have to use a more long-term illness to explain her continued absence. A psychiatric one this time. I was glad of the helpers as I researched all weekend on the internet 
fairly seeing my beloved Bertie apart from at bedtime. I am a quick learner, though, and by Monday morning, I have committed all the symptoms of manic depression to memory. I was going to drop them into my conversations a little at a time until my listeners formed their own conclusions. It was best that way. Unnecessary tears. That's where I was going to start. I was ready and feeling quite sad about the tragic story when the doorbell rang. The rotors said that Frances was coming. She was one of my older friends and I always enjoyed spending time with her, so I decided to start laying down clues. I didn't get a chance. I opened the door and they were all there. All 17 of my grandma friends clustered around the door like carol singers. I was spokesman, said Maria. We need to talk. I bustled past me and filled my living room, some standing, some sitting. I held on tight to Bert, even though she was trying to leap into the arms of several of her favourites. She isn't your granddaughter, is she? said Maria. Some of them gasped, as if this was further than they would have ventured. I kept my mouth closed. If I didn't say anything, I couldn't say the wrong thing. I clutched hold of Alberta until she swirled in alarm. I couldn't bear it if they took her away. I know I couldn't. I would have to go back to Pilates and wine and unsuitable men. <laughs> I started to cry. Maria, let me say it, said Francis. You're frightening her. She handed me a tissue and I blew my nose, which always made Bertie laugh. The thing is, said Francis, we want one too. Well, not one between us. On each, really. We need grandchildren, and we need them now before we get senile or unfit or both. You have to help us. I stopped crying. For real, I said. Look, one of the others said. I think it was Carol, and she held up a beautifully knitted lace shawl. Look. I thought this made and ready, but none of my kids can afford a baby. Other women began to produce pieces of knitting and sewing in a rainbow of colours, thrusting them towards me as if by touching them I could make them less empty, more full of life. I don't know, I said, but I did know, of course I did. I was already planning the first one, which I hoped would be for Francis. Bringing up babies is difficult work, and young people have a lot on their plates. What could be more natural than leaving it to us oldies to raise the next generation? There's quite a few of us now. We hang out in posh shops cafe bars and upmarket festivals and we choose carefully. 
Alberta has a little brother called Darius, and a couple of grandmas even have twins. They got so famous that the mums leave a sign in the crowds. A small bear wearing a hat. If we see a hatted bear, we know that the parent, usually the mum, could do the work. And we take the baby away. We'll install the ticket system like they have at the deli counter. If your number comes up and you don't want the baby on offer, you have no other chance and everyone knows that. It is worth 12 so far. Someone pointed out recently that we needed a name to make us feel more of a unit. We meet up a lot in each other's houses and in parks, but it's good to have a name for the headed paper. I wanted Pussy Riot as a sort of tribute, but several of the older members worried that it could be offensive. So we went for Destiny's Children. I think that says it all. His fingers flutter, though so he knows we are watching him. His nails 
too terrifying to cut. How long? Carolyn makes more tea, and I settle down on the sofa. Ruben needs a feed, but it takes him several attempts to latch on. We're still getting the hang of this, him and I. There is a pain in my nipple as the milk rushes down, and then he begins. He sucks and threes. Suck, 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 rest. Suck, 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 rest. The last time I saw my mother was at Chinese New Year two years ago. I drove down alone all the way through London and out to Farnham to tell my parents that I was engaged. Andrew had volunteered to come with me to introduce himself and to help me explain that I told him not to. I knew that the prospect of me marrying an English man would be enough for my parents without the reality of Andrew all six foot three and green-eyed in their living room. Had I known my dad would hit me, I would never have gone. To be hit as a child is one thing, but to be hit as an adult is another. Should I? Colin asked. Two, please. You don't usually. I do now. I shift, and the baby drops off the nipple. His mouth hangs wide as the trickle of milk rolls down his cheek. You could write and send her a photo? She couldn't resist a photo, she suggests. You'd be surprised. Over the years, I'd said very little about my parents to Carolyn. She has no idea, for instance, that my mother grew up believing it shameful for the first child in her family to be a girl. It isn't that I'm embarrassed, but I don't think Carolyn would understand. She doesn't have the instinct for it. Which may be why Carolyn can't see there is no point in sending a letter. My parents truly feel that I betrayed them by marrying against their wishes, and by the standards they grew up with. They are right. To send them a letter now would only aggravate their outrage. You're tired. Carolyn says, bringing me more tea. I'm fine. No, my lovely. You're tired. And I'm ready to go. She kisses my forehead. Don't you dare move. I'll let myself out. I listen to the click of the front door and transfer Reuben to my left arm so that he can hear my heart in his sleep. In the end, the letter I send is very short. My mother, a child of the revolution, is embarrassed by terms of affection. So after some debate, I do not begin, dear mother, but simply, mother. Every word is difficult. I have not written in Mandarin for years and my calligraphy is no longer good. I spent a long time considering how to describe Reuben, my Rubeny, my Rubenesque, my Ruby boy, how to convey the enormity of Reuben. After several attempts, I decide simply to write that I have a son, that I have given him the Chinese name Fa. Fa means beginning, and he signals the beginning of a new period in our family. I explain that he is strong, and that his eyes miss nothing. I invite my mother to meet him, because he will need the guidance of his grandparents to grow. I do not mention, Andrew, or that I am lonely. I do not say that I need my mother. Once the letter is finished, I take it immediately to the post box 
pushing Rudy in his buggy, though he's hungry and mules all the way. Have you heard anything? Kellen asks when we meet again several weeks later. I sip my tea. It's too hot and spoils my nap. Not yet. I am tired today. Ruben woke every hour of the night. He's a slight cold and his nose is blocked so he can't feed. I'm dizzy and disconnected with fatigue. Before having Ruben, I didn't realise it possible to be this tired. Nothing at all, Kellen asks, which strikes me stupid. Either my mother has been in touch or she hasn't. No. The great that Kellen's cashmere cardigan is the exact blue of her eyes. That there is a pretty flush in her cheeks from the walk from the station. That Carolyn is not tired. Anyway, I ask to change the subject. How did your date go with that guy on Wednesday? Yeah? Ha. Carolyn reaches for a biscuit and bites into it, catching the crumbs before they fall. He was actually quite good looking, but... And we're off. We have been talking about men like this since we were students together in halls. The pattern is familiar, though the men, quite naturally, have changed. Now that Carolyn is recently divorced, a short marriage, a move to Hong Kong, an unfaithful husband, new and rich female suitors have opened up for discussion. As we talk, I move about the kitchen, which this morning is full of sunlight, the first real summer spring. I wipe down the sides, boil the kettle, replenish the biscuits. Every now and again, I go over to the bassinet on the floor to check from Reuben. The sun filters through the eucalyptus trees in the garden, casting shifting shadows over his face. Like this, asleep, he's so beautiful. I am grateful that Carolyn does not mention the letter again. In the last week, I have caught myself conducting imagined conversations with both my parents. Now that I have Reuben and I know what it is to have a child and love a child, I have no memory of my mother ever cuddling me or of either of my parents kissing me. I do it entirely on impulse. One moment, I am sat watching the birds in the garden, eating Reuben and thinking of nothing very much. And then, without planning in any way, I am up and going to the drawer where we keep the takeaway menus, old calendars, cards for taxi companies. I shuffle through, find a card, dial the number. Where do you want to go? Asks the girl at the cab office. I don't have to think. The Peaceful Garden, 157 Angel Street, Farnham. That's a long way. It's going to cost you. Are you sure? I am. It is a Tuesday. My mother will be in the shop alone. As we move through the streets of North London and out towards the M25, I hold Ruben's podgy hand. You are going to meet your granny. She will give you a big cuddle and say, When we arrive outside the peaceful garden, nothing has changed. The same white sign with green writing hangs above the shop window. The same menu is pasted to the glass. I open the door. There is no one at the counter. 
My mother will be out to the back preparing cod for the lunchtime customers who come for fish and chips with Chinese curry sauce. The car seat is heavy on my arm, so I put it down on the tiled floor gently because I do not want Ruben to cry out. There is a movement in the beaded curtain which leads to the back, and then my mother comes through expecting a customer or perhaps a delivery. She is thinner. Her dress is dirty. Makes me look old. Did you get my letter? I ask. The Mandarin comes easily enough. My mother does not reply. Instead, she lifts the flap from the counter, which makes a kind of door and comes through. Her eyes are my son. Eventually, she smiles. She proves. He is strong, as you will, she says. Yes, he is. And then her attention goes from Ruben to me, and I am surprised at the hoping expression. Have you left this, father? I am tempted to say yes. If I say yes, I will be a good daughter again. If I say yes, my mother will love me again. For a moment, I am silent, and in that moment we are together, me my mother and my son, three generations. The possibility of a lifetime like this stretches out. No, Mama, I have not left him. If you have not left him, why have you come? To see you? Something in my mother contracts them. What happened to you, Mamie? I was so proud of you. Mama, your duty was to me. Mama. You owe me a peaceful end to my life. There is a coldness in her voice which frightens me. Now you owe me nothing. Go. I feel hot and fluid as I leave. So I walk to a nearby park and find a bench to sit down. Ruben is fussing now and I struggle to undo my bra while searching my bag for my phone to call Andrew. Around us, the town goes about its business. I listen to the traffic. Children released into a playground, a train in the distance. Eighteen years later, I sit at my kitchen table, waiting for my son to come home. It is his birthday. Eighteen today. He's late. I baked him a cake, sits in the centre of the table, white, perfect. I've been speaking on the phone with Carolyn. Carolyn, who has left to live in Florence with an artist. She calls every Sunday for an hour or more. We rarely talk of men these days. In fact, she didn't mention the artist. Nor did I mention Andrew, though, in my way, I still love him. We talked instead of our children. I complained, as I usually do, that Ruben is never at home, and about how, when he does appear, is with a girl, funny little ginger hat thing who skips up the stairs without meeting my eye. Karen promised me that I shouldn't worry. She agreed that he will, when the time is right, find a suitable wife. The autumn sunlight fades. The cake casts a longer and longer shadow across the table. I remain where I am, unmoving, waiting.
third story in the evening, and the last one before the interval, will be Bulletproof Papoose by Liam Mogan, and will be read by Clive Green. Liam is not a parent, and there is some doubt that he was ever a child, but his mother tells him to stop being silly. He's a liar of long standing and was also a finalist in SciFest LA's Roswell Award, where he was up against Grandma's set robot, Hamlet. Clive recently toured in Up Pompeii, playing Frankie Howard's role of Lurker. He co-wrote Goodbye, the Afterlife of Cook and Moore, which ran at the Gilded Bloom in Leicester Square Theatres and at the New Museum of Comedy. In August, he'll be playing Kenneth Williams in Terry Johnson's Camping Cleo Manual and Dick. Bye! Bulletproof Papoose by Liam Hogan. Mine was a shotgun wedding. In a break with tradition, I was the one holding the shotgun. No way, no child of mine was going to be born out of wedlock. The bastard son of a bastard son. Don't bear thinking that. The marriage didn't last as long as I hoped. I guess till death do us part is an occupational hazard when you're an armed bank robber. The water in the paddling come birthing pool was still cooling when our hideout the fifth floor of Archie Paul's department store, garden furniture, and outdoor leisure, was raided. And in the firefight that ensued, Mary and I got separated. Somehow, she ended up on the side with a dozen armed marshals, brave and truthful, and I was the one left holding the baby. Well, that's not strictly factual, because the little tyke was nestled between my feet, freeing up my arms for ordnance, the likes of which even the army doesn't get to play with. When the dust and the empty cartridges settled, I was the only one standing. Archie, not even an hour old, couldn't even support his head, let alone stand. I grieved for Mary, and uh, I might have stuck around to give her a decent burial beneath the astral turf of one of the display areas, even if that meant that she might have ended up on the fourth floor, cook shop and domestic appliances, which wouldn't have suited her at all. But the symphony of overlapping sirens suggested reinforcements arriving at speed. So, I figured I'd better light out. I hold up for as long as I could, only making the occasional foray for divers and formula, I got the unenviable nickname of the Nappy Bandit. For a while, eventually though, I knew I would have to go out and once again make an honest, dishonest living. And for the first time, that scared me. Having a kid, it changes you. Gone were my carefree days of mayhem. And I sally forth, guns a-blazing. I could hardly leave Archie behind, could I? And I couldn't trust anyone with him, but not the kind of lowlifes I was acquainted with. So, I eBayed a bulletproof vest, 
XXL, slapping the belt, added a few more, did a little stitching, wasn't going to win me any home egg prizes, and hey presto, it was go to work with Daddy Day every day. Archie was nice and snug between an inch of Kevlar, which it turned out is machine washable as well. At first, I don't think anyone knew I had a kid with me. It wasn't like I was wearing a baby on board badge. And with my wife laid out on a cold marching slab, everyone assumed I'd gone off the deep end. And the bulky outfit was most likely me packing plastic. Explosives, that is. I had wondered why the bank guards and local cops were so reluctant to take a pot shot at me. But at least it meant I didn't need to shoot back either. Once Archie's arms and legs grew long enough to poke out, a word got about. I wouldn't even have to fire the usual plaster scattering shotgun blast into the ceiling. I'd simply hold the barrel of the sawn off to my lips, point at the mop of fair hair sticking out at the top of the papoose, and go, Baby sleeping. At least, that was until Chesterfield, Missouri. Not very kitty-friendly, Chesterfield, Missouri. Had to take me a hostage to make good my escape. A doe-eyed black whose name badge proclaimed her as Clarice. Asked me anything. I pulled the flattened slugs out of the papoose's tight blue weed while Clarice rocked Archie to and fro in a three-wheeled shopping truck left behind in the disused warehouse. The cries slowly subsided. You're good at that, I said. She looked up, frowning, uncertain if I was being straight with her. nodded. Thanks, I, I was a nanny before. I was about to pry out another slug when Clarice piped up again. You know, she said, that papoose is not going to be big enough much longer. I knew, of course I knew. It wasn't just the increasingly tight fit. With Archie strapped in, I couldn't run for cover the way I used to. And there was no diving over upturned tables, neither. Plus, I was getting through a tub of deep heat a week for my back as Archie got steadily heavier. What do you suggest, I asked. She eyed me kindly. She wasn't afraid, maybe because she was holding my child, or maybe she was made of sterner stuff than her massy look suggested. I was a very good man, she said. I nodded, still unsure of what she was getting at. She pointed to her name badge. You only have to ask. It ain't much of a lie being on the run all the time, I said. She shrugged. Made much of a life being a bank clerk. <laughs> I rubbed the stubble on the chin. I figured I had just enough coming in or stockpiled away to cater for another man. Especially if it meant I could do an extra job or two a month. I could go off and do what I do best. Knowing Archie was safe with Clarice. Deal, I said, reaching out my hand wincing at the leather spot bruises covering my back and side. Deal, she agreed, 
shaking awkwardly with her left as Archie gripped the thumb of her right. But there were other perks to the arrangement. Clarice was shocked when I told her that most of my ill-gotten gains were squirreled away in buried statues over five counties. Did I not understand the devaluing principle of inflation? Did I not know my money was wasting away in those holes in the ground? It was decidedly odd to sit quietly outside a small-town bank, resisting the urge to storm in there, shotgun on the hip. She opened up a number of savings accounts. Well, obviously her name, not mine. Once I cleared out all the stashes I could remember, she tutted over one particular episode that had me digging up a rose garden in the middle of the night and still not finding anything. See, she said, as dawn broke and Archie grumbled from the back seat of the stolen car, that doesn't happen with an interest-bearing savings account. She was right, of course. The problem was I was reluctant to knock over any of the banks that now carry my ill-gotten gains. I'd be robbing myself, wouldn't I? Cronies tried to point out that that wasn't the way it worked. But I was glad, overall, that she was somewhat contemptuous about the rate of return of Citibank's best offering. At least it left one major chain still to target. Now, she said on the summer afternoon as I oiled my twin automatics while trying to stop Archie swallowing a flat-nosed 3.8, have you given any thought to local schools? I looked at her aghast. Schools? For Archie? Of course, we'll need a permanent address to register from. I gave her a wry grin. Next, you'll be wanting me to start a 401k plan. Well, she said... Life insurance, at least. Oh, I mocked her. What exactly am I going to put down as my profession? Security consultant. No. I laughed. I've never heard bank robbing called that before. It turns out she wasn't talking about bank robbing. Turns out she got me a job. Or rather, an interview for a freelance contracting position. You're joking, right? Look. She said, fixing me with a no-nonsense smile. You're a father. You have responsibilities to Archie. I've been with you for two years now. Do you know what your annual take-home pay actually is? I shrugged. You have the bank account details. Yes. Yes, I do. You're scraping the wrong side of 20000 It seems crime does not pay. Well, not very well, anyway. Yeah, at least I don't have to pay taxes, I pointed out. I earned more than that as a bank clerk. That gave me pause. Still, you want me to dress up as a fake cop and stand at the doors of a Wells Fargo? A security consultant, not a security guard. With your extensive experience, you're ideally placed to advise on weaknesses in branch security. And you'd be earning up to 150k a year. I still hated the idea of taxes, but it turns out once you move into that sort of pay bracket, you can afford to employ someone to make sure you didn't have to cough up more than the bare minimum. 
seem exactly fair, but somehow she laughed that particular complaint out of town. I suppose you'll be wanting me to make an honest woman of you, I said, as we stood outside a neatly appointed three-bed semi with a sloping lawns and a carport with a hyper-electric sedan. Stockholm Syndrome, she said, shaking her head, which baffled me somewhat. Do you love me, she asked. Uh, well, uh, then we'll hear no more about it. You will, however, draw up a two-year employment contract for a live-in nanny. Two years. Archie will be starting school then, she said. And as a freelancer, your job is flexible enough to cope. You won't need me. She was right, of course. She was always right. Not about me not needing her. It was tough when she left. But about her worry that we would come to rely on her too much, Archie and I. With her gone, we moved on. We had to. The house seemed too empty at first, until I started internet dating. Archie gets insane, which is normally yuck. But the latest, a red-headed book illustrator, gets his begrudging respect for her ability to doodle a crocodile. She has my heart to boot. Clarice comes by every so often. Archie is still very fond of her. As am I, I guess. Though it seems she's moved on as well. I'm due to meet with an acquaintance of yours, she said, stirring a coffee in the cafe by Archie's school when I commented on the unexpected reappearance of the Clarice Ask Me Anything badge. Oh, Brandon Murgatroyd? Glad I'd be stumped for a minute. The firm I do my work for has a couple of specialist architects, a half dozen alarm system experts, a few freelance on-site consultants like me. But I didn't recognize the name. Then something clicked. You mean Boom Boom Murgatroyd? She nodded. He's got a little daughter. Three months old. Quite adorable. I bit thoughtfully into my cookie. Don't suppose there's much call for someone who blows up safes in my line of work. No, she agreed. But I've got a demolition company in mind. A couple of years down the line. However, it does mean I won't be around. Archie will miss you, I said. She shrugged. And I hit. But it can't be helped. I go where the work is. I heard the distant explosion as I picked Archie up from the kindergarten. As I ruffled his hair and he babbled on about his day, I smiled, knowing that somewhere out there was Clarice. Reforming a single parent bank robbers one at a time. <laughs> Thank you, Clive. And now, please welcome Dan Louie to the stage, who will tell you more about Cat's Foundation as the bucket is passed around. Thanks for having us tonight. Fantastic stories so far. 
Now, I'm from the Cat Foundation, which isn't about cats, it's about small children and two rare diseases called K-Sacrophobic disease. Now, Rosalind, whose first story was read out, is a good family friend of ours, and her and Katie suggested doing an event for charity. And doing a live event is a fantastic opportunity, actually, because the stories are one of the things that our kids really enjoy. Sadly, these illnesses result in the children being able to do anything for themselves. They can't really see, they can't move, they can't think. But they really enjoy touch, feel, and stories. It's one of the good things we do with them. We all families, these uh, children have lots of storybooks that will interact with the children. And my wife and I started the Cats Foundation back in 2011 when our daughter Amy was diagnosed with this illness. And there's unfortunately, there's a life expectancy of over five. So what we try to do is go out to meet new people, to raise awareness of the diseases and raise a bit of funds, and try and get people involved with us to find a new way. It's not one of those charities like to do with the standard, you go and run for us a 5K, it's like different sorts of events. And this sort of thing is a fantastic way to meet people who may not know about the charity or may want to do a different sort of event for us. So, yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah. And uh, more stories next time. Yeah. Our fourth story of the evening will be Wandering Eye by Phil Berry, we read by Sophie Morrow Phil is a novelist, medical writer, and author of a book series for children called All Pieces. He studied medicine in Bristol and works as a hospital doctor specialising in liver disease. He lives in London. Sophie recently played Rebecca Lock in a series called The Paradox, a project which she helped devise as a short film in 2011. She's involved in several new writing initiatives in London. Her professional credits span the full spectrum of theatre, TV, commercials, film, voiceover, rehearsed readings, and most recently, roleplay. Sophie! He is sure. 
family man, holds his hands to his ears and devolves diplomatic responsibility to his wife. She can sort the fracker out. He twitches with the guilty glimpse. Not the burnished calf, nor the curve of the neck. No. The symbol of its entirety. Of self-determination. The straight line connecting desire and outcome. Unobstructed by the needs and the wants and the urgencies of others. She pauses at the curb. She saw him, not him. Rather, the unit, the collective. It fascinated her and gave her hope. She takes her phone and checks the text again. Date's time. She's early, with busy but useless hands. She rushes through a gap in the traffic, takes a small risk. She's happy to take risks if it can be reward if the reward can be assured. Our man admires her live movement and turns back to the business in hand. That of dealing with closer entreaties. Of the auctions. 
hiding the black pigment with which she accentuated her lashes onto her cheeks. She is deeply unhappy. It is on her mind. Oi! Daddy! was the mother of his children. If you're quite finished looking at the scenery, we need your manly strength here. It's come completely stuck. He goes to it, smiling at last. The sun has brightened. It is warm at his blood. He has everything he needs. And everything he could ever want. It too short. 
I felt like someone else on that day, but truth told, we try not to be ourselves on first dates, we try to be our PR agents. You might have worn a skirt. In fact, it was a dress. It was florid. I think it was ugly. Uh, something an auntie might wear to a wedding. I remember a vivid memory of you either going to the bar or for a piss, and I wondered how I would possibly touch you, how I would unpuzzle you. I don't mean that in a crude sense. I mean I was nervous. Your sexuality and youthful vibrancy scared me. I was piloting a small plane that was caught in a downward spiral. I think I wore a black t-shirt. It was always what I felt the safest in. A ten-pound parachute from M&S. Now I'm lost in hostile land. I'm not at the table, but amongst the £1.99 maps. I want to find this spot. This spot on the map where we will legally detach. Where I will only be woken by my daughters every other weekend. How this will be the pick-up and drop-off point. How they will bring their little carry cases of pet pig figures and talk about people and places beyond my experience. I will suggest going out to Pizza Hut or to the cinema. My child-filled weekends will be marked by excursions to out-of-town retail parks with their lurid colours and e-numbers, not the routines I became accustomed to. And that makes me feel heavy, as if something squats upon my chest. Outside the window, birds take berries from the central reservation. The road is pockmarked by frost damage. It reminds me of the muffin I pushed numbly round my plate. The screed from the road, the salt gritters and lorry spray, has discoloured the windows and etched into them unreadable runes. Something tells me that they tell it's not good. Doug is your new man. You want to marry quickly. I know this as I was married to you. Doug is a dentist. Doug, I imagine, drives a Mercedes or some other status car. It probably has a vast bewilderment of things it can do. My daughters will drop their crumbs and plastic tops from their Ella's kitchen into its valeted decks, along with the odd toilet accident that will fail to blemish the leather upholstery. But Doug will never see his dead parents in my children. He will never experience those strange moments, those unnerving times where someone you haven't seen for 20 years suddenly enters the room or looks at you strangely when you tell them off. He will not get those moments, the ones that people never tell you about, that remind you of how alive you are, how the blood knocks at the wrist like a bailiff. Doug will not remember the 40-plus hours of labour, or how one of the twins had to be resuscitated in the hallway light right in front of him. Doug is childless. He has you, my little lights, on loan, not permanent transfer. I have no Doug to go home to, no significant other. I don't want my own Doug. I just want to lie in my own bed and listen to the ringing in my ears. I'm pissing in the urine. In front of me is an advert 
with some business people looking seriously at a PowerPoint presentation. They are all so sharp. I have never, despite my suits, felt that sharp. I have never been that focused on a PowerPoint presentation. There is a blonde woman with oversized black frames and tightly slicked back hair. She's in a grey suit. One of the men with suspiciously grey hair for one so youthful is fist-pumping the air with success. They make me feel sad. Sad about the motorway. About modern life, generally. Is this it? Is this all there is? Business people who don't exist in a restaurant where people come to divorce. I piss a little on the floor in protest, but end up hitting the edge of the urinal and splashing my trouser leg and then having to use the hand dryer to hide my shame. <laughs> Heading back to the table, I can see all is done. We're done here, says your lawyer. Congratulations, I think. You are no longer Mrs. Wren. The twins will spend their alternate weekends playing I Spy on the English motorway system and trying to figure out what surname to use. I'm a dad. I told myself over and over the night I drove away from the hospital, leaving you all there in the clinical light. I didn't feel like one, though. You don't straight away. I tried in that small gap of time to savour the moments of my bachelorhood before you were all discharged. Sometimes I still don't feel like that. I remember years ago a man on the radio saying he felt nothing, not an ounce of love or hate for his grown-up children. He had done his bit and now he was getting on with his own life. The presenter called him brave. Then I read about another, a trawler man, who on returning from the sea would weep uncontrollably and hold his family for so long that his wife had to hit him to bring him to his senses and send him to bed. He looked up his condition, luxuriousness. What kind of father would I be? Thing is, we are shown model fathers all the time, playing with their kids and being strong in adverts and films everywhere. Would they ride on my shoulders or help me up the stairs when I become infirm? Who were these little people come to bury me? Truth is, I have always felt like I was acting through life, turning up to the rehearsal every day without fail, like a too keen understudy, waiting for his moment in the spotlight. As for being a father, I had no idea how to play the part. Divorce seemed as inevitable as marriage. I could do nothing but conform. Once I realised I was losing you, I let go. Another man might have stood up and fought like mad for his family, said things that made the air electric, displayed an alpha male ability to solve things with a few simple words. Not me. I had no lexicon for this. Even in hindsight, there are no words I can find to fight back at moments already past. 
No great denouement to the final scenes of our marriage. No. The last meaningful words I spoke. The words that would determine the future of my family. The last few utterances that meant something were, How about the little chef on the A14? Somewhere, someplace, far on the edge of my vision, there is an audience wetting itself. It's all done, and my lawyer is shaking my hand in the car park. He's happy, and therefore I should be too. I feign happiness. But really, I want to pull his glasses off, throw them into the motorway traffic, and repeatedly punch him in the face. I've never hit anyone, but right now I feel this urge to really hurt him. But he's gone. And I'm left standing beside Ramage Haulage in the noise of winter traffic. A rising panic in my chest, a lolly in my hand. Watching you pull away. Thank you, Will. Before our final story of the evening, some notices. The Liars' regular night is on the second Tuesday of every month at the Phoenix near Oxford Circus. Our next event is Dungeons and Dragons on the 14th of July, so please do join us for that. If you are a writer, our next open theme is Accident and Emergency. Details of this, along with all of the year's remaining themes and videos and recordings, are on the Lions website. And so, our final story of the evening will be How to Change Your Dragon by Francine Castile, read by Kim Scopes. Francine is the mother of many short stories, three novels, two unfinished, one unpublished, and one big. No dragons were harmed in the writing of her story. Kim is an actress and puppeteer who trained at East Fifteen. Recent credits include Boris and Sergei's Astonishing Frigatorium and CBBC's Strange Hill High. She's also performed Shakespeare at the New Wellesley Ipswich, taught puppetry in Peru, and performed at Glastonbury, and puppeteered in the recent series News Audience. Kim! How to Change Your Dragon by Francine Castile. When Greta Stanton woke up one morning from unsettling dreams, she found her eight-month-old daughter had transformed into a baby dragon. Obviously, she assumed she was still dreaming at first. The cot was beside their bed, so on hearing the 7 a.m. wail, a little rough around the edges than usual, perhaps, she rolled over and peeked through the bars to check on Poppy. What she saw... What she thought she saw, she told herself, muzzling back into the pillow, lying on its back, four legs curled across its chest, was a chubby, lizard-like creature, covered in iridescent green-blue scales, the colour and sheen of a peacock's feathers. Its hooded eyes gazed sleepily at the wooden pepper pig mobile that dangled above the cot. 
Forty minutes later, Greta suddenly sat bolt upright in bed, her nostrils twitching. The Peppa Pig mobile was on fire. The non-toxic pastel paint bubbling and crisping. The baby-safe tangle-proof strings burned half through and smouldering. The scaly creature now occupying Poppy's baby sleeping bag was gurgling throatily and batting at the drifting flakes of ash. A gnawed chunk of mummy pig protruded from its lipless mouth, lit by tiny blue and yellow flames. Greta stared at the charred crisp tape for a long and horrified moment. Then she reached for the Evian on the windowsill and scattered the contents over the cot, dousing the remaining fires. Needless to say, Reese, lying next to her, had still not woken up, although the rather pleasant aroma of burning beechwood was now very strong. She glanced back at the drenched little reptile, spluttering and sneezing wetly. The creature... All right, it was clearly a dragon, but there was still something poppyish about it. Stared back at her, golden brown eyes rapidly filling with tears. Greta kicked Reese. <laughs> the dragon's pointed ears perked at the sound, and its mouth opened in a surprisingly pink smile. Poppy had always been a daddy's girl. <laughs> Said, as in reply, like Poppy, it had five teeth, two on the top and three on the bottom. They looked considerably more business-like than Poppy's milk-white bloodstone, and Greta, who had always been an evangelistic champion of breastfeeding, found herself considering the dusty formula bottles at the back of the cupboard. Reese rose up behind her like a leviathan from the deep. He worked a lot of late nights with a graphic design company and was never at his best in the morning. He squinted at the dragon, which, having burned through half of its sleeping bag, had shook the rest and now clung unsteadily to the bars of the cot with its pearly claws. Naked, but for the, pop- uh, the panther's nappy, Poppy had gone to bed in the night before. Bloody hell, said Reese. What's up with pops? Some sort of allergic reaction? Greta handed him his glasses and then his iPhone. Put these on, she said, and then call the doctor. Dr. Hall was a local GP, and also a specialist pediatrician with designer specs, a caramel soft voice, and a grade one buzz cut topped by a stripe of slicked back hair, which Greta suspected became a phone walk when he went clubbing in Shoreditch at weekends. He was always incredibly good with Poppy. So much so that when the baby was being particularly appalling, Greta sometimes fantasised about leaving her outside his office in a Moses basket with a note saying simply, You understand? It hadn't been easy to explain the reason for the emergency appointment. In the end, they flushed it with some hard truths about escaping skin and running at temperature. Swaddled in a fireproof baby blanket, under which was a layer of tinfoil, Bruce's idea. The baby dragon seemed as cozy as a baked potato, sucking drowsily on its razor-sharp thumb claw. Greta had curtained the pram with a white muslin and resisted drawing back the fabric for the whole bus journey. Now, as Bruce manoeuvred the bugaboo into Dr. Hall's office, a faint, wild hope leapt in her 
that when they pull the cloth back, their soft, pink baby girl would magically have been restored. This wasn't what happened. Instead, before Dr. Wall could lift the muslin, there was a sustained burp and a jet of orange flame blasted a perfect circle into the center of the fabric. The dragon peered through the child hole in apparent delight, a thin line of milky drool adorning its green chin. I told you not to feed her on the bus, Miss Montague Sasha Bocci. She's all shut up now. Greta winked. The idea of a hungry dragon clawing through the plant in search of sustenance had been too embarrassing. Despite a quick, desperate search, she had no idea what dragons ate. Virgins aside, so she'd given it the carton of Actimil kept at the bottom of the pram for emergencies. Hmm, said Dr. Wall, tipping up the dragon's chin and staring into its great, glassy eyes. Well, this is unusual. Unusual, said Reese, with Greta considered admirable restraint. Mm-hmm. Dr. Wall lifted the creature, holding it under its forelegs so that it dangled, wriggling from his hands. Oh, puppy! Right? We think so, said Greta, dubiously. Dr. Wall smiled. <laughs> you thought maybe a changeling? <laughs> no. Don't worry, it's nothing like that. This is your baby, all right. Just a little scaly today, huh, princess? He tickled the dragon till she gurgled, then settled her comfortably on his hip, where she proceeded to claw razor slashes in his expensive-looking shirt. Dr. Hall was either too cool to notice or didn't care. So, he said, good news is she's flaming well, bright and active, third eyelid working fine, you guys look a little shell-shocked, but I guess you'll recover. You know, I'm surprised they didn't give you the pamphlet when you were in the hospital, Mrs. Sampson. I mean, it tells you what to expect around eight months. I mean, some kids transform earlier, six months maybe, but Poppy here is right on track. Did you have any other concerns? White spot? Scale mice? Greta and Reese looked at each other. Pamphlet was all Greta managed. In reply, Dr. Hall bent to the bottom drawer of his desk, releasing Poppy, where she immediately crawled towards Reese, burping as she went, leaving a trail of scratched and scorched liner. He resurfaced, holding a dusty booklet with a cartoon of a red baby dragon on the front, waving a silver rattle. In large, friendly letters, like the magnets on their fridge back home, it said, So you're having a dragon. It's all in here, he said. <laughs> Obviously, without amniotic tests, we can't know 100% you're popping out a little fire in there. But the register usually identifies likely couples. Did, did neither of you know if you had dragon blood? Greta and Reese exchanged another glance. I'm a negative, said Greta. I'm adopted, said Reese. Dr. Hall frowned at Reese. That's a Welsh accent I hear, though. If your mum or dad was from one of the royal bloodlines, it's actually pretty common there. Nobody talks about it, though. Especially to the English, eh? <laughs> he laughed. Reese didn't. 
Dr. Hall glanced at Greta. Her white blonde hair and blue eyes. But in the maternal line, you don't have any Asian ancestry, do you? Sweden by way of Shropshire, she said. Really? That is odd. There must be some reason you two have produced a full-blooded emerald. He pulled up her notes on his screen and scanned them. Poppy, who had been Laura Reese's trainer with her canines, suddenly started wriggling around on the floor and uncomfortably. A faint miasma of yellow-green gas escaped from the back of her dungarees, and within seconds Greta was choking, her eyes streaming with burning tears. The unflappable Dr. Hall tapped a surgical mask on his face and passed her another. Reese coughed a bit, but otherwise seemed fine. He reached for the discarded tinfoil and wrapped it round Poppy's steaming body, then sat her firmly on his lap. Yeah, <laughs> chuckled Dr. Hall. It was taking us all far too cheerfully, for Greta's taste. That's one of the drawbacks of infant dragons. Apart from the breath, of course. You have to buy the special nappies with the aluminium weave. Anything else just gets eaten straight through. It's a digestive acid, you see. But don't worry. You can get vouchers. Baby-proofing is a challenge, though. You'll go through quite a few cribs. Thank God for freestyle <laughs> So, is there... Greta found it hard to frame the question. She wasn't even sure what she knew what to ask. No, I mean, is it poet? Will she... Will we... Be like this forever? Is the condition incurable? Dr. Hall made funny fingers with his ears. Funny ears with his fingers. <laughs> Sorry, which said oddly with a suddenly serious face. Well, Mr. and Mrs. Samson, first of all, you have to realise that having a dragon child is much commoner than you think. We don't shout it from the rooftops because of the obvious problems of prejudice and panic, but it's an open secret amongst the medical and draconic communities. Not to mention the baby product manufacturers, right? Can't keep a lucrative market from them, eh? And... It's not a debilitating condition. You just have to make a few allowances and changes. Just like if your child was colorblind or lactose intolerant, maybe. There's no cure, because it's not a disease. And as soon as Poppy learns to take control of the metamorphosis, that's usually around the time as they start talking, you won't have to keep practice fighting the dragon phase, either. It's all in the pamphlet. Oh. And here's a pack of those special nappies. I always keep some handy in case of accidents. He passed Greta a slim, discreet silver bag, stamped with the brand name Aluminium, <laughs> and the stylized puff of flame. As they shook hands at the door, Poppy safely sewed in the darkness of her crown where she gnawed busily at the shredded corpse of the rubber giraffe. Dr. Hall crinkled his lovely, clever eyes and smiled at Greta. Don't worry, Mrs. Samson, he said softly. You'll adjust in no time. We love our kids no matter what, right? Besides, she'll be back to her normal in no time. Greta wasn't so sure. When they got back home, Reeves bathed Poppy and put her to bed. His skin seemed to be a lot more flame-resistant than Greta's, 
and he was also radiating this almost palpable air of smugness at discovering he was a royal dragon blood. <laughs> Meanwhile, Greta ran for a takeaway, thinking that today of all days they both definitely deserved one. They sat in silence watching Game of Thrones with a wholly new level of interest, <laughs> until Reese reached across and squeezed her hand. I've been thinking, love. Weren't you born in the year of the dragon? He showed her his iPhone screen with a list of years. 1988 was a them. Oh, yeah, she said. I never thought of it before. Later, when she went up to check on the little dragon, whose cot trees had now lined with a silver blanket from his Ben Nevis climbing stag weekend, Greta was astonished just to see how much in sleep. It really did look like Poppy. It was splayed on its back, arms akimbo, little claws half curled, and as Greta leaned over, its eyes flickered open for a second, flashing golden brown. Still Poppy's eyes. On impulse, Greta put her thumb into the small, scaly fist, and instantly, just like Poppy always did, the dragon pulled it into her mouth, sucking vigorously until a few drops of blood came. Greta winced, but decided that after a three-day labour, cracked nipples and projectile poo, she could pretty much get used to anything. Thank you, Kim. And that's mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, scaly fire-breathing lizards and um, babies. Is that go forth, etc., etc.? When you leave, please take a leaflet and drop any loose change you might have in the cat's book. But until then, stick around and chat to the actors, the authors, and the charity organisers, all of whom deserve one last big round of applause. Good night. (laughs) 